0: And as you're turning to Acts chapter 1 uh, to read these first 14 verses, uh, I will have you know that uh, as the first verse indicates, this is actually a continuation of a thought that Luke, the physician, began in the Gospel of Luke. And so the book of Acts can actually, in some measure, be looked at as, as a, uh, kind of an appendix. To the, uh, to the gospel narrative that, uh, that Luke has provided for us as he continues writing to his beloved uh, Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus actually means lover of God as a name. Uh, he continues his account, having told of the life of Christ, he is now going to tell of the life of Christ in the church, which is the body of Christ. And so that's that's why you have him mentioning that name. That's why you have him mentioning his former account. He's referring back, actually, to the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, and reading those first 14 verses, we read from the Word of our Lord, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, "...after He, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom He had chosen, to whom He had also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father." which he said you have heard from me for John truly baptized with water but you shall be baptized with the holy spirit not many days from now therefore when they had come together he at, they asked him saying lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to israel and he said to them it is not for you to know times or seasons which the father has put in his own authority but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Amen. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and also Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Let us pray. O God, the King of glory, You have exalted Your only Son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph to your kingdom in heaven. Do not leave us comfortless, but send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and exalt us to that place where our Savior Christ has gone on before us, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God in glory everlasting. Amen. David shared a little bit uh, about the graduation that he attended yesterday in Jackson, Mississippi, celebrating with the faculty and students of Wesley Biblical Seminary. He serves on the board there and has been a faithful board member for many years. And um, we prayed a blessing over Weezy because she's graduating. I, I misspoke, not this coming weekend, but this coming Wednesday. She's graduating. And this time of year, we see... Banners raised outside of uh, neighborhoods as homes want to celebrate their children who are graduating. Uh, we see announcements uh, coming uh, in the in the form of letters in mailboxes announcing you have been accepted to this school for which you have applied. Congratulations! It's our honor to have you as a student. This is a time of year where we where we in one moment celebrate both. The beginning of something, but also the end of something. We call this time a time of graduation, which is about the ending of a thing. And we also call it a commencement. Uh, those speaking formally would refer to a commencement address. And the funny thing about the word commencement is that it's the beginning of something new. You say goodbye to something that you have known, something that you have You have trusted, that you've depended upon, that you've borne your weight down on for a number of years, and you step out into the unknown as something new is opening up before you. That's the nature of graduations or commencements. You're ending, and yet you're also beginning. You're stepping out onto the road that the future has in store for you. Just before Jesus' passion, His disciples endured something like a graduation or a commencement. We call it Maundy Thursday. And it was the night that Jesus was betrayed. It was the night that He washed the disciples' feet. It was the night that He instituted the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. It was the night in which He celebrated that Passover meal with His (laughs) disciples. But it was a night that brought to a conclusion a period of life For his disciples. Because it was the last night. Before the cross that he would spend with them. And it's funny. The way he used his time. That night. He didn't rehearse. Some things that he had previously taught them. He didn't say. Alright guys you got to remember. Let's go down the bullet points. This was not a cram session. uh, The night before a test. He didn't use it to just kind of spend some casual time with them to unwind a bit. Yes, he sat at table with them, as the Scriptures would tell us, but he actually used that as an opportunity to start unloading and unpacking a lot of more information that they have not yet encountered. In fact, as Dr. Kinlaw puts it, it's almost as though Jesus says, you don't know enough yet. And so he opens up to them a series of classes. He begins teaching them about the Holy Spirit who would come. He begins teaching them about going to prepare a place for them so that where He is, there they can be also. He begins talking to them about the fact that He is the vine and they are the branches and that they must abide in Him. He also begins to scare them. Look, they're going to hate you. They're going to throw you out of the synagogue. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hated. You're going to be rejected. After all, if your teacher is not to escape that. How do you suspect you would? And so that evening, that night of graduation, that night of that they would be commencing on into the future where Jesus is no longer with them in the same way that He has been for the three previous years, they say goodbye. And yet they're still ignorant. They still don't realize what the future has in store for them. They still are confused. They are still scared by the cross as they ought and as we ought. They are intimidated. But what then happens is Jesus is betrayed. He is arrested. He goes through those mock trials. He is handed over to be beaten and scourged. And He is nailed to a cross... And he dies. And all hope seems absolutely lost. This is the end. It is over. Their hopes that this was indeed the Messiah, that this was God's anointed one who came to restore His kingdom on earth, it's over. And Jesus is dead. Their Lord, has been killed. So a book closes, depressingly, traumatically. But then the trauma of the crucifixion gives way to the joy of the resurrection. Because three days later, he rises from the dead, the tomb is found empty, there are the claws that he was wrapped with, And the Lord is missing. But then they encounter Him. They encounter Him physically and tangibly. He tells them, here, touch my wounds. He offers them food to eat. He Himself consumes food. He walks upon the road. He talks. This is no ghost. This is a resurrected Lord. The Scriptures then tell us there's a period of 40 days where Jesus is popping in, making these appearances. And as He's popping in, He's holding little lecture sessions, teaching them more and more before He is to go to be with His Father. And so these 40 days are passing. And it's almost as though the disciples are in that limbo that is the summer after graduation. Most of you have experienced that. You graduate high school... And you, you, you really thought, all right, we've come to the end of something. Classes are over. Woohoo! We're done. And you feel like something is about to begin. You're stepping on into the future. But then what's this summer thing? My, I, I'm just hanging out cleaning pools or you know, bussing tables, that sort of thing. And it's kind of a period of limbo because that which is beginning has not yet quite begun, we're, we're still waiting a bit. The disciples are kind of enduring that. Forty days where, okay, we, we, we thought Christ was going back to be with His Father. We thought we were going to be alone, but He's still here. He's still showing up. He's still teaching us. We can still hear His voice. We can enjoy meals with Him still. But then the ascension takes place. They meet Him on a mountain. And suddenly He is gone. The clouds receive Him and He vanishes. Luke tells us that they're straining their eyes. Where is He gone? What has just happened? And then these two men, these two angels apparently show up and say, what are you doing? He's gone where He told you He was going. But notice what Jesus' last statement to His disciples is. Wait. As the King James puts it, tarry in Jerusalem. Hang tight, guys, because you are going to be endued with Power, The Holy Spirit is coming upon you. It is not over. It has only begun. We think the Gospel is about nothing but the cross. And I will say, the greatest image of the Gospel is indeed the cross. Because the cross is not just about our Lord's death, though it is about that, but it is about the great love that God has for His people that He would step into His creation and that He would endure a human life, that He would live a real, tangible human life, that He would die a torturous death, but that the grave would not hold Him. God has come to redeem His people. But the Gospel does not end with the cross the Gospel writers wouldn't even have us believe that the Gospel ends with the resurrection. Though Paul, in his letter, says the resurrection is the linchpin. Without a risen Lord, all hope is lost and our preaching is vain. Your faith is pointless and futile. You remain in your sins apart from the resurrection. But even still, (laughs) Luke tells us And the other Gospel writers tell us that there's more to the story than even the cross and the empty tomb. There is a Lord who has ascended to the Father's right hand and He tells us there's more yet coming. He has gone higher up and He has raised us with Him and yet He is sending His Spirit See, the resurrection is important to the Gospel because in the resurrection we have kind of the incarnation coming full circle. God became man. The Son took on human flesh. He left the joys and bliss of heaven to come and to live a human life. And the one who was made incarnate to redeem us, he ascends to his Father's right hand. He returns to heaven as the as still the incarnate God. The one who still is clothed in human flesh, but it has been glorified. But also the the, the Ascension matters, not just because of the incarnation, but because of our redemption. What you have in the Son ascending back to the Father is you have redeemed humanity being raised up into heaven. In heaven, there is a human man, a Jewish human man named Jesus who sits at the Father's right hand. And our redemption has been secured. As He sits at the Father's right hand, He has brought human flesh into the courts of heaven. And we have been redeemed. What comes down must go up. You didn't learn it that way in grade school. That's the Gospel. What comes down must go up. So where is heaven? I don't know. I've never been there. Is it a literal, physical place? You know, that's what all the news... Stations want to talk about during you know Easter season and Christmas season. I'm going to delve off into those subjects. Well, the gospel seems to lead us to believe that yes, it is a literal physical place. Otherwise, what's the big deal about resurrection? He was literally, physically raised from the dead. Is it up in the sky? Is it on Mars? We don't know. What we do know is that the theology of the Old Testament and the New Testament have something in common. They have quite a bit in common. One of the things they have in common is that when the assembled people of God and where they assemble, that in that assembling and at that place of assembly, that somehow, in some mysterious way, perhaps in a different dimension of reality, heaven and earth interlap. That's what the temple was all about in the Old Testament. It was the place where God's people would meet with God. And that's what the Holy of Holies, or as the Hebrews would say, the Holy Holy, that's what that place was about. The mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant between the two angels. That was where God dwelt on earth with His people. And the New Testament's no different. Paul and the other New Testament epistle writers speak of the church as being the body of Christ and the place in, wherein there are angels present among us. And as we lift up our voices in song, we lift them up with the voices of angels and archangels. That's what the book of Revelation, one of the reasons it's, it's written, one of the things that it's about is, the, is what, what is taking place in the worship of heaven that the church is invited to partake in in its worship on earth. And so when we gather, we don't just gather because it's a good thing to do or it's something we ought to do. We gather to meet with heaven. That's why we call this place a sanctuary. It is a holy place. It is a place where God dwells. Not because this is some temple that we've established to come and appease our God, but this is the place where God has chosen to meet with us. It's interesting, when you walk through the New Testament and some of the things that that it leads us to believe, some of the things that it, 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 it demands of us about the ascension and about our ascended Lord it, it ought to blow our minds some of those minutia of details that it, that it tells us one of the things that the, um, that, the uh, that we know from the scriptures about the ascended Lord is that he bears scars you remember doubting Thomas we give him such a bad rap what, what did the other ten uh, faithful disciples, what did their faith in the resurrected Lord do for them? They were still hiding out in the closet, afraid to leave. But one of the things that uh, Jesus tells Thomas after the resurrection is, look at my hands. Here, put your fingers in the wounds of my side. That's after the resurrection. He still bears scars. Scars are important to us. They remind us. Topher is working on a little scar on his forehead, reminding him that if you pitch a fit, don't run into doorways, because you will split your head wide open. Emery's got a little scar in his eyebrow, reminding him, be careful those High tables at belt—they are glass, and you can't see them if you're even with them. Be careful. The scars that that our ascended Lord bear remind us of the price of redemption. Redemption does not come cheap. We speak of it cheaply, but it does not come cheap. Only blood can save. So his scars are one of the chief signs of the resurrection. Luke says that he showed his disciples many infallible proofs. In other words, in other words, proofs that cannot lead us astray. Proofs that we must, as Josh McDowell say, wrestle with and come up with an answer for. Question, what is it? Questions that demand a verdict or something like that. Uh, some of the books that Josh McDowell has written. Evidence that demands a verdict, I believe. Um, so he bears scars, reminders of the wounds of our redemption. In the book of Acts, as Luke walks us through, um, and as you step on into the te- the um, the theology of the New Testament, you find that it's a lot of emphasis is placed upon this: that Christ, our ascended Lord, the one who has One, our redemption, the one who sits at the Father's right hand, that He has been given all authority and power, for the right hand is the place of power and authority. It is the place of honor. And the New Testament uh, goes to to great lengths to, to remind us that our Lord sits at the Father's right hand. He has been given the place of honor and authority and power. The Hebrews writer in the New Testament tells us that He sits at the Father's right hand, ever making intercession for those who come to God through Him. So at that place of honor and at that place of authority, He intercedes for us. He prays for us. He cares for us. He bears us to His Father. I love um, uh, one of Charles Wesley's greatest hymns. Arise, my soul, arise. It's a, a wonderful ascension hymn. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on His hands. He says, five bleeding wounds he bears. And those wounds cry out to the Father, forgive them, Lord, forgive, they cry. Let not that ransom sinner die. So he makes intercession. He sits at the Father's right hand, the place of authority and power interceding for us, bearing us to His Father's throne. The New Testament also tells us that it is it is when Stephen is suffering that uh, Jesus stands. I am given chills as I read through the account of Stephen's testimony and his persecution and his suffering and his eventual death of the boldness that he has. And one of the things that he says is as his eyes look up to heaven and as his persecutors are stopping their ears and are screaming so that they don't have to hear what he's saying. And as they raise up stones in their hands to kill him, he says, Behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the Father's right hand. Wow. What an image. The one who sits at the Father's right hand at the place of authority, the place of power, when he sees his followers suffering, at least in Stephen's case, he stands as if to honor him. He stands. The ascended Lord... Giving me fits here. I think my battery's going out. The Ascended Lord He sends His Spirit to indwell our hearts. He tells them, "Terry in Jerusalem, wait for it." John baptized you with water, but I will baptize you with your with my Spirit. Next Sunday, we celebrate as the church Pentecost, the day that God's Spirit was poured out upon all flesh, fulfilling the prophecy of Joel. As the church gathered in the upper room in prayer and in fasting, as they gathered and waited as their ascended Lord had commanded, they were waiting for the Holy Spirit who was to be poured out upon them so that they would be given power not power so that they could work awesome signs, but power so that they could, yes, as a wonderful sign of, of Christ's resurrection, so that they could live the victorious life in the world. Not so they could escape, but so that they could live. So he sends his Spirit to indwell our hearts through faith. In the New Testament would demand to us that this ascended Lord is also head of the church. As head of the church, he is the one who has been given over his people to have authority, to be the leader, to be the one that sets the agenda. Not to be the loudest voice, but to be the one with the voice. He has placed His head over the church. And the church, as His body, is called to point the world to her Lord. That the Incarnate One sits at the Father's right hand that He has redeemed the world, that He is indeed Lord and rightful King. Therefore, the church is called to rightly and faithfully point the world's attention to He who is her head. We're called to live lives that declare that Jesus is indeed Lord. We are called to live in this world that demands to the world that Christ is indeed Lord. That there is hope in the Gospel. That life in some measure has been put back together. And that the world is being put back together. And we do that not in word only, but indeed In the way we live, not just faithfully abstaining from sin, but in the way we live, boldly declaring the love of God to our neighbors. And love is something that is better expressed through action than word. It is important to tell people Jesus is Lord. It is important to tell people that we love them. It is much more important to live as though Christ is Lord and to live as though we love people. So some of you have an opportunity this coming Saturday to show the love of God and to, de- to declare to a neighbor in need that Christ is indeed Lord that He does care about His people, that He does care about the world. He cares so much that He's even willing to send some of His servants to clean toilets, to scrub floors, and to clean up sticks and rake leaves. We are called to know the One who has ascended and to write so in rightly knowing him, to declare him to the world. Let's pray.